Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Sophia speaks with Associate Professor of Art and Art History Carol McGee and Associate Professor of Music Lee Weissert. The two fall faculty fellows ask each other questions about their current research projects and discuss how a person's learned behaviors play a role in interpreting sound and visual art. No, I'm so excited to talk to you guys. So, Carol, I find your research pretty interesting. I didn't really know much about, you know, your work before you guys came as fellows, so it's always nice to kind of like learn new things. Um, but how would you describe your research? My research broadly is on African photography. I'm very interested in how um, photographers represent their sense of place through photography, um, both sort of experientially and, um, well, experientially, psychologically, philosophically, um, and how that is conveyed visually, um, and how multi-sensory environments are conveyed through just visuals, because um, I think that's a really hard thing to convey, and yet in looking at photographs, we still get a sense of place, and I'm interested in how artists are able to capture that and convey that through photographs, and so that's what my research has been about um, up until this point. And then um, here I'm doing something a little bit different um, and taking my research in a different direction. Uh, and that's a very new <laughs> project that I'm really having trouble sort of figuring out uh, how to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I've been uh, working on a, a, a movement practice called Feldenkrais, and I'm thinking about how that movement practice can be used to think about interpreting photographs. Very interesting. Um, so I know you're kind of forming how you're talking yeah. about this, but what are what are your thoughts surrounding what the project you're working on, the faculty mm -hmm. fellowship through that seminar? What are you kind of working on now? Well, I'm interested in thinking about how we move um, to look at art and think about art um, certainly artists are always moving in creating art and moving through cities, um, experiencing the cities. And so that, in thinking about how the artists that I work with create the art, I've been thinking about their movement, um, thinking about movement in terms of uh, the physical movement of artists, thinking about movement as a metaphor for um, storytelling. They use uh, movement as uh, the rhythm of cities, cadence. They talk about a metaphor in terms of music. Um, they think of it like rhythms of jazz when they talk about their... So I've been thinking about movement a lot in terms of my projects. And so then I was also thinking, well, in terms of looking at art, we move to look at art. We walk through galleries, uh, we turn our heads, and how does that impact how we understand the art that we're looking at? Um, and refining that sense of of our bodily experiences in understanding what we're looking at. Mm. So I'm I'm trying to refine that a little bit. <laughs> and uh, and as a part of your research, mm -hmm. are you finding that you actually have to physically do this movement as well to understand it? Is there something a component that you 
are actually doing too. Well, yes, I have been doing this this movement practice myself um, just as a separate thing okay. anyway, which is sort of what got me thinking about it. Mm. Um, and um, as part of my own separate practice for my own life, separate from my academic life. <laughs> there is one. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it just was like, oh, hey, these dovetail in this nice way and I'm going to bring them together um, for this project. Very nice. Very yeah. Thank you. Um, Lee, we'll shift back to you. Okay. That's all right. Yeah, of course. So can you just give me some background about what your current research is and then what led you to kind of this melding of desperate sounds and experimentation um, of music that you're kind of creating? Sure. Um, so I'm what's called, quote unquote, a composer. Although that's like every term, I guess it's kind of loaded. It implies a certain type of music. Um, could be problematic, I suppose, but I'm fine with it. Um, so um, my research um, is the creation of either scores, notated scores for performers to play, or recordings. And I also do create sound installations, which are kind of um, artistic uh, sculptural pieces that have some sonic component um, associated with them. Um, so I do kind of, I suppose, three different types of work um, if, you, if you break them apart. A lot of times these are hybridized, but those would be traditional um, music performed in a concert hall by live people. And then there's electronic music um, that's often composed uh, exclusively for the recorded medium. So you put on a recording and never performed sometimes. And then, um, as I said, the sound installation works, which are more of uh, kind of uh, visual art pieces with um, um, some sort of generative um, sonic element. But in reality, I, I, I move very fluidly. So I write a lot of pieces for, for live performers with electronic elements mixed in or pieces that are for the recorded medium with recordings of performers um, in, made in the studio. So it's very blurry. Um, and I think increasingly I'm enjoying like blending all of those different elements into the same kind of musical experience rather than moving between them separately. Yeah. And so, so this project that you're working on through the faculty fellowship program is it's a longer piece, mm -hmm. correct? Um, so and you're using some different sounds that you never used before. Yes. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that, what the project's like and some of the components? Yeah. Um, I think it's probably the most, it's hard to just talk about music without hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the most descriptive thing I can probably say is that um, it's kind of an ambient or soundscape type of a music, musical piece. So it doesn't have a lot of the traditional elements that we'd think of, such as rhythm. I mean, it has rhythm, but it, not a recurring beat, a metric structure. Um, it doesn't have a, what you would typically describe as a chord progression with melodies. It's more of like a sequence of sounds. Of, of Some of them are static in nature. Some of them move, are quite agile. Um, and nothing really um, repeats in a kind of sectional way that you'd often structure a composition. It's very continuous. Um, so it's just like this continuous exploration of new sounds. Um, and theoretically, you know, the piece I decided to try and write a 20-minute piece, I might change it to 30. Theoretically, it could be an hour, several mm -hmm. hours long, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
which is reflective of, of that concept that at any point you could stop the journey if you get tired of walking or listening, whatever the, um, however you want to think of it, you could just turn it off, and that's fine, and you wouldn't actually miss out on you know the ending, mm-hmm. right, in a traditional kind of narrative structure. Um, so that kind of concept then led to some new ways of using material, um, such as uh, increasing the amount and diversity of the material, because you can't just write, you know, a never-ending sequence of chords for the piano that will get old. So novelty and exploration is part of part of the piece. So because of that, I'm using sounds that I usually not put together before. What was the sound that you were surprised about um, and that has been an important part of this piece um, and that you might have never used before or or mm-hmm. maybe have a new mindset about like using this kind of sound in the future? Right. Um, so in, with a shorter piece um, like that I've written in the past, there's usually a few elements that are foregrounded, like the instruments or the sounds from the synthesizer or whatever. Um kind of musical sound generating thing you're using. Um, But with this piece, um, I'm exploring what would usually be considered noises or non-primary material, things like ambient recordings of a room, for example, Um, very quiet sounds that you can amplify and then kind of study the minutia of of like what they're made of. Um, And so... I mentioned that I've been recording silent rooms um, and then amplifying them so you can hear the different kind of shades of silence. And in this piece, in some sections, I'll I'll use that as primary material, s- switch back and forth between spaces with nothing in them. Um, and it creates a very strange kind of sensation, like, because we all know intuitively the sound of the different rooms that we're in, but we've never... Um, experienced them like in side-by-side comparison or treated as musical material. So I'm having fun using what I guess you'd call um, secondary musical materials, things that you don't traditionally consider to be musical instruments, for example. I also just want to say that this silence and the way you're talking about it reminds me of our conversation at lunch today and thinking about stillness. Right. I think about stillness and the relationship of movement in photographs and that. Yes. So I just want to throw that out there. So yes. Yes. <laughs> an observation. No. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, John Cage famously talked about the this concept. That there's no such thing as silence. Just just very quiet sound. <laughs> <laughs> and that he tried to experience silence. This famous story where he went into what's called the anechoic chamber, which is um, a scientifically constructed laboratory space that's supposed to absorb all sound um, to get as close as possible to silence. And he went in there and he he heard two sounds. He heard a low um, rumbling sound and like a high frequency sound. And he asked the the, uh, laboratory technician or whoever was working there, um, I don't think the room works because I can hear these sounds. And they said, well, one of them is your circulatory system and the other one is, you know, some other biological um, your auditory mechanism or something like that. So then he said, okay, there's there's no possible way to experience sound because even our own bodies are creating sound. Um, but getting back to the question about structure that you asked, 
Um, yes, yeah, quite exciting um, for me because I've been kind of hung up on structure, uh, thinking very methodically, using computers to create models based on, uh, I would often look to the physical sciences like fluid dynamics um, or mathematics, uh, fields where they have kind of um, what you call linear systems, um, uh, data or, or behaviors that, that unfold dynamically over time and that, would, that are often very easy to map to music. So I was fascinated by that and by the potential for computers to generate new, new ideas for structure and, and for behavior generation um, on the gestural level. Um, but um, that kind of cl closed end uh, thinking where you'd have a piece based on a certain m model that would be, have a beginning and then continue and then eventually end, that's not working so well with this open-ended composition that I'm dealing with now. And now it's much more psychological and um, dealing with, um, with the act of listening and mental states while listening, um, I think, is what's more interesting and relevant to the current uh, music. Yeah. What I found really interesting um, about being able to experience your piece this semester was um, being able to just really focus on the sounds and listen to it. And um, because as I'm thinking about this project, I'm thinking about expanding my project beyond just looking at the visual art mm -hmm. um, because it, of movement being an, a whole body experience. And so thinking about sound and touch um, and other ways of experiencing the world and what kinds of art we look at or ex interpret and experience with different senses. And so that's been part of my thinking about movement as well. And so being able to listen to sound <laughs> um, has helped me think through that project in that way. But um, the movement away from this narrative, yeah. um, and yet so many people in the group right. impose these narratives. Yes. And there seemed to be this inability or um, Imposing uh, narratives of what they believe. Of, yeah, they, Images, people came in with these yeah. elaborate stories about what this piece was or these mm -hmm. images that went along. You know, these entire worlds Very were created. And it was yeah. really fascinating to, to hear mm -hmm. all the different worlds that people had created in their mind listening to this piece mm -hmm. instead of just listening to the sounds. And I yes. found that a really fascinating thing. Right. To, right to listen to in the different people's responses to the to the sounds yeah. instead of just the sounds yes and experiencing it's incredibly hard sounds. it's incredibly hard to listen to just sound um and maybe in a way it's like like what you're talking about with the feldenkrais is this kind of like um habitual like r practice mm -hmm. uh, focusing on listening in a certain way as you know as a parallel to focusing on mo moving your body in a certain way that you can get better at it um, but it's true I mean sounds are so evocative and the, the lack of any kind of representational language right the clear meaning behind a sound for example a C major chord um, people just fill it in 
you know, with all kinds of stuff from who knows where. And it's and it's unavoidable and I love it. You know, it's not a it's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just fascinating. I mean, it I did fascinating. It too. I was like, was that a fan? Was it you yeah. know, we were trying to like what was the source of that sound? Yes. You know, you wanna know. And yes. it was really an interesting experience it was, to have yeah. that. Um and to see how far I could get away from it myself mm. and where I couldn't get away from it. Well, and, you know, it, it also depends. Like, you listened to the piece many times. I did. <laughs> so I think that might be maybe one of the biggest factors in, like, your um, your reading of the piece versus someone who just listens to it once. And it's the more you're familiar with the piece, the more you can put away those first kind of impressions and start to explore these different ways of hearing it. Yeah, and so that kind of gets to this next section that I wanted to talk to you guys about. So you guys have completed your last faculty fellowship lunch today, Yeah, sadly. <laughs> um, so you guys have spent like the last couple of months with each other, you know, at least checking in and obviously understanding each other's projects in a new way, in a new level. And I wanted to know if you guys have any questions to ask each other that we haven't said yet. So maybe, Lee, do you have anything to ask Carol about her project? Um, yeah, I mean, this, from the very beginning, when you, we introduced each other and we described our work and our projects, I was just immediately struck with how close, um, close our interests are, Mm -hmm. uh, in this type of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like kind of experiential, sensorial inter engagement with the work of art. Um, we're talking about two very similar experiences um, from maybe from from my perspective from different um, sides of the of the experience right because I'm talking about it as a creative artist how I can think about um, the details of sound and like close listening um, to create a certain experience and you're talking about it as a from the point of view of the the viewer um, so I'm I'm really like excited to see where your project goes, because I think it could have a lot of very um, uh, revelatory uh, discoveries along the way, you know. And I'd, I just want to know more about it. I mean, one one of the things I'm curious about, uh, Feldenkrais, from my understanding, is a, as you said, it's a kind of a intentional retraining of your bodily mm-hmm. movements um, to... Uh, I guess to create a more efficient and healthy way of of moving, mm-hmm. and to be more comfortable. Um, so what I'm wondering about how it maps onto the, the artistic experience is: are, is it a similar type of thing where you are proposing or exploring a, a kind of a way of entrainment to change the way that we um, interact with a work of art? Or are you more interested in exploring, um, explaining what's already going on, you know, in, without us really thinking about it? Does that make sense? Are, yeah, are it you, does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know that I want to explain mm-hmm. um, because I think what's really important for Feldenkrais was um, people learning how to learn for themselves. And so giving people the tools to learn and make choices for themselves in movement so their movement is the best movement for themselves Mm -hmm. and the most efficient. And so through that, 
um, their orientation in the world can change. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking about this at this time <laughs> is that um, that art can do the same thing for us. If we, if we engage with art in a way, it can impact the way we orient ourselves towards the world. And um, thinking about how we move in that engagement um, and making sort of in, having very intentional ways of engaging with the world or, mm -hmm. or with art and not engaging with it in um, the habitual ways that we engage with it. So if we walk uh -huh. into a room or walk into a gallery and we're just sort of scanning and we're like, oh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. But really sort of looking like what is in that? Why did the artist make these choices? What do they tell us? How do I actually look at this image? Or how do I actually listen to this sound piece? What can I, what can I gain? What kind of perspective do I gain that's different from paying attention in this different way? Uh -huh. How can that change my orientation in the world? And that can, can have a broader impact because then we think about other encounters that we have, other engagements in the world that we have that are different. And with this uh, way of uh, this new awareness or a way of um, interacting uh, with the art piece, does it? Do you think that it would be equally applicable to to any type of art, or is it better suited to work certain type of work? So I haven't fully thought that through, but I'm going to say any kind of work. Okay. I think it's about learning, and yeah, once you learn how to learn, you can apply it to anything. Because with any pieces of art, you you, yeah. you move and you engage yeah. with it similarly. Because yep. I had talked to you um, uh, about certain pieces of music yes. that um, I, that immediately came to mind that you literally have to learn how to hear um, because of the, the, the kind of content of the music is hidden. In uh, somewhere in there, it's it's, it's not necessarily the, the most foregrounded sound that you hear. So it takes practice to kind of learn to listen in the right area. And I thought that was like right in line with what you were talking about. It is absolutely. Yeah. But I think that once you've learned how to hear in that really particular way, mm -hmm. that listening to other things like the way you listen to other things will broaden. And so you'll hear right. other things and you'll hear the world differently. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, like for example, uh, one ex musical example that could illustrate that very clearly, there's this thing called overtones in music, which are every sound has a bass pitch that we call the pitch, like a C, C natural. But inside every um, pitch, there's these overtones, which is these very quiet, very high frequency sounds um, that exist in, in all sounds, except for a sine wave, which is a computer generated sound. Um, and so these pieces ex that explore the overtones, they'll have a very loud tone, and then you listen above, and they're basically drones, but you can hear this twinkling of these high frequency sounds that exist in all music, but we just tune them out because there's so much other stuff going on. But these certain pieces that are so minimal and they foreground this tiny little, like the minutia in the sound that I can imagine then that would re, as you say, kind of reframe how you hear everything because that's present in every piece. 
Yeah. So I like think about like, you know, just as I'm walking like across campus or walking around, um, walking through the woods or something like what sounds am I aware of now? You know, mm -hmm. that the expansiveness of mm -hmm. the, what you hear changes as your the way you think about listening changes. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we can be completely oblivious yeah. to what other noises Usually, are going yeah. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if we're like more attuned to listening, then we'll hear all those subtleties. We'll hear the silences in the room that aren't the silences, ah, right? Another good example. Yeah. Didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, I did have another oh. question too, because we we're talking about you know this experiential kind of sensorial mm -hmm. engagement yeah. with, but what um, we commonly think of when you think of artistic interpretation or criticism are like ideas, right? right. Concepts. What is the what is the painting about? Right, right. Um, decoding it, uh, the symbolism, and this represents this. It's a reference or stylistic references. So um, I'm curious about um, does this does this new project is it bypassing the kind of the conceptual and intellectual issues involved with interpretation, or does it inform it or in, engage with it in some way? No, it definitely informs it mm -hmm. because I think that um, that there isn't a sort of mind body separation. Yeah, <laughs> you know that false distinction. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. and and so um, either for us as as viewers of art or experiencers of art, and for artists who create art, and so that it's all there, <laughs> and so to try to separate and say we. Mm -hmm. can only experience it without all this other context or sure. meaning. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. I think is not um, possible in terms right. of, of an artist and just as an art historian who's trained to to look for meaning yeah. I don't know that I could actually step you away from that to, yeah. completely <laughs> <laughs> ever. <laughs> it would be too hard for me. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So but that actually um, brings me to a a question that I had for you, mm -hmm. um, which is about um, the communicative abilities of sound. And, uh, you know, that so much of what you're doing is playing with just these sounds yes. um, and distorting the sounds from their original sources. And so I'm curious how you think about sound in general. And, you know, if people are like, uh, applying meanings yes and there aren't meanings yes what, yeah what do you think about that philosophically well, or yeah. as an artist no it's, a, it's an important question with, yeah and this is what we talked about a, a lot in our in our fellowship discussion um i mean music is just notoriously um hard to to interpret clearly i mean the famous example is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which was played at Nazi rallies and then at the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, you could put any meaning into a piece of music. Um, and this has been called like, a, a, you know, part of the danger of music is that you can fill it with any kind of um, interpretation or meaning that you want to. So, um, and I've always had, ever since I took a Alfred Hitchcock film class in my undergraduate um, studies. I've always had what I refer to as meaning envy. I I realized um, like how uh, 
complex and um, sophisticated and um, kind of effective um, you can be when you're dealing with film or visual art or um, uh, you know fiction writing that you can't do that with with sound um, just because there's not that kind of clear correlation between a sound and what it means um, so um, but it's a double-edged sword I think you know you know the fact that you can't express these very detailed complex thoughts um, means that possibly you can kind of open up to a different type of experience of artistic experience maybe closer to what you call like the subconscious level and lately I've been trying to be more um, focused on thinking along those lines specifically like our evolutionary ways of hearing or the evolutionary mechanism um, which is um, a little weird to think about but you know every every sound that we hear creates some evolutionary trigger in us you know there's um, anything from the range of frequencies that we can hear um, certain sounds we're more sensitive to I mean one example I always think of is I has two cats and they always seem to be very reactive to certain sounds that I don't, don't notice but um, I can shuffle a uh, glass or put a book down and it could be quiet but they jump and they both jump at the same time mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about there's like these evolutionary triggers that are in us um, that um, that um, you can I don't want to say exploit but you can play with mm -hmm. when you write music uh, you can play with spatial location with frequencies and uh, things like ambience right so you can create strange situations where you're not um, sure what type of a space you're in when you're listening because one sound has a lot of reverberation another one is very dry um, and things like very rapid sequences of pitches that are just on the threshold of our being able to kind of um, absorb um, these kinds of like almost evolutionary uh, type of um, sonic triggers I think create a type of listening experience that is a bit tense, you know, but engaged in a in a very, for me, very satisfying way. I, I don't want to create music that's like a scientific experiment, you know, like I'm like like prodding your synapses or anything. But um, I think that type of listening is is in all music, um, but with kind of experimental and electronic music, you can kind of um, bring it a bit more into the into the fore, and um, use it as a, a new way of, of thinking about organizing sounds, you know, our listening mechanism and, and our, the neurological components and how we, you know, sometimes you call it music cognition, like how we, um, our psychological reaction to different types of sounds. When now you had said that you're going to just commission a bunch of performers to create sounds for you. Yes. For the rest of the semester, pretty much. So you can finish your piece. Yes. Probably next semester. Uh -huh. And is that, um, how do you determine what sounds you want? Is it thinking those types of things? Like I want sounds that will trigger those tensions or trigger those sorts of reactions and that's how you know what kind of sounds to commission or how do you, how yeah. do you decide what sounds you want to commission? I yes, no, that's question. a good question because <laughs> I, whenever I say that, they say, well, you haven't written the piece yet. How, come you, how can you be recording sounds? Um, 
it's a weird, it, it's another kind of uh, angle I'm exploring is this, this um, schism between composed music and improvised music. So the sounds that I'm asking the performers to play are improvised. I'll give them um, short descriptions, like a sentence or a few descriptors of types of sounds that, that um, they can play. And, and I usually ask people that are seasoned improvisers, um, and I record way more material than I could possibly use. And then I stitch it together in a very kind of focused, detailed way so that it's this kind of a hybrid of what you call improvised music and composed music. I'm creating a bunch of improvisational uh, material and then working with it in the same way a painter might work with like colors mm -hmm. or um, a sculptor might, you know, put marble together. Um, so it's a, that's another kind of experiment that I'm working on in the piece that, that I haven't really talked about, that um, using improvisational um, recordings um, after the fact incorporating them into the piece. And, um, you know, there's something in, in, in improvisational performance that you can't compose anyway. Um, so I've always listened to Im improvisational music. Um, but on the flip side, there's something in improvisational music that you can't do in a, co in a composition, which is an instantaneous mind meld where all of the performers know instantly we're going to do this at this second. That never happens because it's impossible logistically. But you can kind of do it if you gather enough improvisational material and then use it in the recorded medium to make things like that happen. Uh -huh. It's kind of it's kind of fun. I've never done it before, so I'm not sure if it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see the yeah. result. Hear the result. <laughs> and then Lee, yes. um, kind of following up on that, um, like you said, these people are seasoned improvisational, you know, musicians and yeah. things like that. But you feel entirely comfortable for their interpretation of what you're providing them and when you receive what they send back to you mm. is that something that you completely accept at all cost or is, is there going to be a revision of you know I gave them these three words but I was a little thinking something a little more like this but or are you just at the mercy of kind of what they interpret it to be um I, I have a feeling that I'll be pretty satisfied with what I get um on the one, like, on one hand, like I said, there's more material than I can use, so I can be pretty picky um, because they. I would feel guilty about it if you know I had them prepare all of this material and then I said I'm not going to use it. That would not be cool to do. Yeah, uh, I don't think they would appreciate that. But since it's all improvised, um, you know, they don't need to prepare anything, so we can have a lot of fun with it and use what what would work best. But then also, it's kind of the nature of this this piece that. It has this kind of a way of listening that it's just continuous flowing, you know. As I said, the structure of it is not so important anymore. So as long as the sounds are evocative in some way, um, they'll work. You know, I can make them work because um, it's just that type of a piece. It doesn't need to be fit into this exact harmony at this exact time where the stakes would be higher. That, oh, you actually played that a little bit wrong. You know, can you do a little louder on this note? Um, so as long as they have some sort of um, evocative, like something that, that is attractive, um, I think they'll work somewhere. I could so, say that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I have one final bonus question for you guys. Yeah. Um, feel free to answer or not. But we asked everybody on this podcast, what's a book that changed our life? 
I think uh, this maybe is a little bit too focused on like my my work as a composer. Maybe there's other books that I read that had more personal Im- impact on me as a person. But John Cage's um, Silence, he's got a book called Silence, was I guess revelatory. Like I didn't think about music the same way after I read that book. So I guess that's what you would call changing your life. I think the, so. The permanent um, kind of alteration of how you think about something. And it's a strange collection of essays and kind of experimental poetry. A good read, mm-hmm. definitely. I would have to, and this is, again, with my research, so there's probably also, I would say, some other book um, from childhood that impacted me. But I would say that it's James Clifford's The Predicament of Culture. They got me thinking about how we really interact with other cultures. Um, and when when did you read that? First? I read that, I think, as an undergraduate. Hmm. But it might have been just as I was heading into graduate school. Like, I don't even remember when I read it. I no, read Silence know. in my first year of master's. Yeah. I think it's kind it's of... like that, that time. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Where you're really moldable. And You've got the chops. <laughs> yeah. You're developing the chops. And yeah. you just need to, yeah, find that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for coming yeah. in and talking with me today and bearing with the technical difficulties (laughs) that happened so that's it thank you so much thanks check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall you can find all the episodes of our podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.